Today, I am joined by Dr. Maria Carisi, a postdoctoral associate at Vanderbilt University. Her expertise is in looking for supermassive black hole binaries, which are systems that are formed during the collisions of galaxies and weigh well over hundreds of millions of times our sun. For my first question, could you tell me a little bit about what made you decide to pursue astrophysics as a career and how you became interested in it and what specifically about astrophysics interests you the most? Yeah, that's a very common question. I think it wasn't one single thing that made me interested in astrophysics. I think there were, let's say, a series of smaller or bigger things that led me to what I do. In school, I was good in math and in physics, so I enjoyed it. So I thought I would do something STEM related. I had a good physics teacher in high school, so I became more interested in in physics. And he had some knowledge about astrophysics, so I had questions he could answer. So I decided to go to, to study physics in university. So in Europe, you choose like the department that you're joining from the very first day and like the U.S. where you go into the university and you declare a major later on. So I decided I would do physics. And then there I met a professor and I started doing research in his group. So they were doing plasma physics and I decided I would be closer to the astrophysics section in the department. I also liked other types of physics, so that was not like a very clear decision at the point. And then at one point, I went to a public night in the observatory and I heard another professor talking about gravitational waves and how LIGO would discover gravitational waves sometime soon. That was back in 2010. So I became very excited about gravitational wave research and I decided that I wanted to do research on that field. I searched for PhD programs that had that aspect of research in their program, and that pretty much led me to what I'm doing today. Okay, cool. What specifically in in the field of gravitational waves are you doing? Obviously, it's a you know, it's a huge collaboration. There are these two huge detectors across the US and there are so many members involved. So I guess what's your part in it? So I'm not working with the LIGO collaboration. LIGO detects gravitational waves from stellar binaries, so stellar mass black holes or neutron stars, in gravitational waves from supermassive black hole binaries. So these are black holes that have mass from a million to 10 billion times the mass of the sun. And the binaries are formed when galaxies collide and they emit low frequency gravitational waves. So LIGO detects gravitational waves in the hertz to kilohertz band. The gravitational waves I'm interested in have either millihertz or nanohertz frequencies. Uh, and I'm interested in, there are two ways to detect them. One is to use the galaxy as an entire gravitational wave detector and use pulsars, which are very precise clocks. This is called pulsar timing arrays and can detect the most massive of the supermassive black hole binaries. The second method is we will have in about 10 or 12 years a gigantic interferometer that will fly in space that is called LISA, and that will be sensitive to millihertz gravitational waves and practically black hole binaries that have mass from 10 to the 4 to 10 to the 7 solar masses. So wow. interesting. Yeah. Right now I'm focusing on the pulsar time in array aspect because we think this will be the first one to detect gravitational waves after LIGO. 
but I'm also very excited about Lisa. Okay, so the only way that gravitational waves have been detected so far is through LIGO, right? Yes. Okay, so that was really interesting. What you mentioned is using the whole galaxy as a gravitational wave detector. How exactly does that work? So we have pulsars, which are neutron stars, so very dense stars, and they have magnetic fields. So we have radio emission along a magnetic field. So we have a beam of radiation. And we also, these pulsars rotate. So if the rotation axis is misaligned with the, the magnetic axis or the radiation axis, we have this lighthouse effect. So we record mm -hmm. pulses on Earth every time the beam of radiation swipes our line of sight. And because they repeat very stably, we get repeating pulses, uh, which repeat very precisely, normally. Now, if we have gravitational waves that are passing through the galaxy, the distance between the pulsar and the Earth will be squeezed or stretched by the gravitational wave. So some of these pulsar pulses will have to travel a shorter distance if the space-time is squeezed or a longer distance if the space-time is stretched. And then instead of coming at the exact same times, they come either sooner or later than predicted. And mm -hmm. we need to see this signal across many pulsars in the sky, just to make sure it's not the pulsar that is doing something weird. And we also want this signal to be correlated among the different pulsars. That seems extremely hard to detect, I feel. First of all, the fact that you would need a supermassive black hole binary, isn't that quite a rare event as it is? You'd have to have two galaxies collide for that. And then not only that, but these you're, you're talking about such tiny waves. We've only detected these a few years ago. How precise do our measurements are detectors like precise enough to find these? Or is this just a very, like how hard is it to find these things, I guess? So I would say we don't know how common supermassive black hole binaries are. We see the first stages of galaxy mergers quite often in the universe. And we have also seen galaxies that have two supermassive black holes, but they are at large separations. We have never seen them at the very final stages of their evolution when they are at small separations and we expect them to emit gravitational waves. So one thing is we don't know how often galaxies merge or at least we have a lot of uncertainty on that, and we don't know how often these binaries form. In terms of how sensitive the measurement has to be, we need to, we have, we time these pulsars very precisely, and we need to have of order of hundreds of nanosecond precision. And we have been timing these pulsars for about 15 or more years now. And we are thinking that we are getting close to the required sensitivity to detect these waves. That makes sense. What kind of considerations are you fighting with, like in terms of the atmosphere, for example, causing some uncertainty in those measurements or vibrations in the ground? Because for LIGO, at least, that's a really big factor is all the vibrations that you need to discount and try and find the true signal. Is that a similar case with with this well, kind of technique? it's not exactly for like vibrations on the ground. So our measurement, we have radio telescopes that are pointing to the pulsars. So the main sources of noise, let's say, is not understanding what exactly the pulsar is doing. The pulsar may have another companion and they are moving around. So there's a lot of noise associated with 
your physics of the pulsar that we may not understand precisely. There are stuff, the, inter- the interstellar medium between the pulsar and the Earth that can affect our measurement. Mm-hmm. A few years ago, we had the issue that we, th- we reference our observations to the solar system barycenter. And that is dominated from the sun, but it's also perturbed by big planets like Jupiter. We ended up finding that we didn't know precisely enough the position of Jupiter to to reference them at the correct the barycenter. So this type of noise is what we are do- dealing with. Technology of advancements at the telescope, at the radio, radio telescope, also help to minimize the noise of the observation. So from the data that you have so far from all these radio telescopes, do you have candidates or signals in the data that you think are likely or have a chance of harboring the signal? Pulsar timing arrays will uh, detect two main signals. One is the gravitational wave background that is from many binaries that are emitting gravitational waves. And then on top of it, we will detect individual supermassive black hole binaries. So we think that the first signal will be the background. And in fact, when we analyzed the last data set, we saw a common signal among many pulsars in the the array. And that could be the first hint of the background. We haven't seen the characteristic correlations we expect among the different pulsars. But if this is the first signal, detecting the characteristic correlations could happen very soon. So this is a very exciting time. So the main, would you say that the main limitation right now is the precision of these radio telescopes? And so I know you mentioned that other method, the one where I think you said a detector would be put in space. Mm-hmm. Is that much more promising, do you think? And will is it more likely to get candidates for these supermassive black hole binaries? Uh, can you remind me the first part of the question? What is... Do you think that the precision of measurements from the radio telescope is the biggest limitation currently? So what usually helps us is to time them for a longer time, just because we become more sensitive to lower frequencies. And also it helps to have more pulsars that we are timing. Just by adding more pulsars and finding more pairs to do the correlations, that helps a lot to build the signal. LISA, which is the other detector, works completely different. So LISA is more comparable to what you think about LIGO, except for it flies on space and it doesn't suffer from the noise from the ground. Mm -hmm. But they are sensitive to different frequency ranges. So PTAs will find the most massive binaries, the ones that have masses from 100 million to 10 billion times the mass of the sun. LISA will find the least massive of the supermassive binaries that have mass from 10 to the 4 or 10 to the 5 to 10 million times the mass of the sun. Okay, got it. What is important about finding these binaries? Is Does it help us understand something like about the evolution of the universe, the characteristics of the universe? Why are you looking for all of these? So mm-hmm. this is a very good question. We We think that these binaries form when galaxies merge. And these collisions of galaxies are very important for how galaxies form and evolve. So finding this last piece of the puzzle of galaxy mergers will help us better understand how galaxies form and evolve and also how these systems evolve after the galaxy has merged. So there's a lot of uncertain mechanisms that are involved in the orbital evolution of a binary. So finding them is very important for that aspect. We are also thinking about the most massive 
binaries in the universe, gala gravity is at its extremes, so better understanding gravity also. Okay, got it. I know you mentioned that there was this sort of background for the for all the supermassive black hole binaries in the universe co- contributing to some background that you expect to see. Surely that background would be like it's quite a would be quite a strong signal. It's a lot of these binaries and I'm guessing gravitational waves from other objects. I don't know if they're in the same frequency, but doesn't that also overwhelm any signal that you might expect? So doesn't that kind of impede what you're trying to find as well? So the binary by itself, it's an astrophysical signal. So it has interesting information, like how often galaxies merge or how often these binaries are formed. For me, I have to say, finding the individual binaries on top of the background is more exciting. And we think that will happen in a few years. Um, Why now it's exciting for me, the individually resolved binaries? Because except for gravitational waves, we expect that they will produce bright electromagnetic emission. So they, they will also emit light that we can detect. And then the idea is to combine the traditional observations with light with the gravitational wave observations and do what we call now multi-messenger astrophysics. Why haven't they been detected by light then? Is it like, why haven't we found these just by visual observation? Right, because it's very hard. We cannot take an image of a galaxy and to the two black holes when they are at small separations, we just don't have the resolution. So we need Mm -hmm. to infer that there is a binary in that galaxy from how it affects its environment. And this is a very active field of research and it's actually what I did my PhD on. One method to find them is to find quasars, which are bright galaxies, where the brightness changes periodically. We have this binary in the center that is surrounded by gas. As it orbits, it periodically perturbs its environment, so we expect that it will produce periodic changes in the brightness. And we indeed, in the last five years, we had the data for the first time to look for this type of signal. And we have a few candidates, a few hundred candidates, let's say. But confirming that these candidates are real, periodic and real binary, it's very hard. Because, again, uh, quasars have a specific type of noise that can mimic periodicity. The periods that we are looking for are a few years long. So we don't have very long lines to see many repetitions of the periodicity. So just confirming that is very hard, but it's also very new and exciting. Yeah. From what I understand, the location, so you have a bunch of these candidates, but knowing those locations doesn't help you much in terms of the actual uh, detection, or is that not the case? It helps a bit. So when we typically do a search that we don't know anything, we search all over the sky But if you have a candidate, you can fix the position of the sky and you can also fix the distance because it's that one galaxy. So that removes some uncertainty from the search and it helps. It doesn't help to the extent that we would have found them yet. As we, the sensitivity increases, that will become very exciting. Cool. So you said this is a really active field of research. It's new, it's exciting. Are there other methods that either you or other people are also working on to try and find these as well? Or is this method that you've described the general kind of most kind of popular way of doing it? I guess? 
So this is the most popular way to find them at the very final stages of their evolution. If you go to somewhat bigger separations, there are also other methods. So for example, there is gas that is moving with the black holes and the quasars typically have what we call broad emission lines because the gas that produces these broad emission lines is moving with the black hole, we would see shifts in these lines. And again, with that method, we have quite a few candidates of order 100. Again, it's very hard to convince ourselves that these are indeed binaries because there are other things that could be doing these shifts that we don't understand. So we need, again, to observe them for a very long time and try to start seeing a fraction of the period. In these separations, the periods are longer, so some decades or even hundreds of years. So just getting the baselines of different observations to start building the period of a candidate, it takes a very long time. That, that makes sense. So do you think, based on what you've said and the fact that you were saying that some of the periodicity happens over years, what you're planning on working on for the future? Is this like your main area of interest and are you going to stick with this or are you thinking of other things as well? For me, the most exciting is to combine gravitational wave observations with electromagnetic data. And I think from both aspects, it is a very exciting time. I already mentioned that pulsar timing arrays are very close to detecting gravitational waves. On the electromagnetic side, we have a new telescope. It's called the Vera Rubin Observatory. uh, And that will systematically scan the sky and give us huge samples of quasars to work with. So this will be a very exciting data set to look for quasar periodicity. And because this is a huge sample, we may end up finding the more rare binaries that have a periods of a few months. So if you have a period of a few months, you can build the, the confidence very, let's say, in a short time scale because you can see the repetitions mm. in yeah. a shorter time scale. So this is the most exciting aspect for me right now. I'll keep looking at Google Scholar for the paper where you guys finally discover the first supermassive black hole binary through this method. But so for my last question, it's a bit off this and it's to do with academia in general. So Mm -hmm. as someone who is looking in from outside your fields of research and astrophysics and academia, how would you describe it? Is it a competitive field for people who may be looking to enter it? Is it very collaborative? Do people help each other? How would you describe the whole field in general? I would say astronomy is a relatively small field and that makes for a good community. So it's, I would say it's relatively easy to get do physics in the beginning or do astrophysics in the beginning and get a PhD in physics. It's relatively hard to find a permanent job because there are not that many. So it typically takes, you get your undergrad degree, then you have to do your master's and your PhD, and then you have to do possibly two postdocs, it's two or three years. And then you have some chance of finding a permanent position, which could be either a faculty position, teaching at the university and doing research, or a position at a national lab like NASA. So it takes a lot of, it's a huge time investment. Mm. Say along the way, you get a lot of useful skills like analyzing data, solving complex problems, communication skills, working with people, teamwork. These are very important skills for outside of astronomy and academia. So people Mm -hmm. who 
get PhDs and decide that this is not the career they had in mind, they typically find jobs in data science. So what would you say as an astrophysicist, what would you say are some of the most important skills that you think you need to have a successful career in general? At what level are you thinking? Is- Think, so I so you are, as far as I know, a postdoctoral associate, right? And I'm guessing you want to become in the future a professor at some institution. So to go from an undergrad all the way up to become a professor at one of these institutions, what is the most helpful skills you can have? Is it just being very good at research? Is it very good at collaboration, at communication, at networking? What are the things that you think are the most important? All of the above, I would say. So you really want to do really good research and write papers that have an impact on the field and do something novel. But you also want to be able to communicate it. We We very often give talks. And if the talk is not that good, maybe you won't get the interest of other people. So they won't notice your work. You, yeah, you need to be able to work with people because now the most exciting aspects of the research is in big collaborations. So teamwork is important. So yeah, I guess the answer was all of the above. And I yes. guess at different stages, maybe different aspects are important. So when you're starting, like having a strong background in physics and in math and be able to program is a very important skill, but also you have to build all the other skills that are typically overlooked in physics. That makes sense. Okay, thank you, I guess, for speaking to me. It was a very, it was a pleasure speaking to you. I learned a lot about supermassive black hole binaries. So yeah, thank you. Thank you. My pleasure.